Martial Map by Ian Abernethy. In this audiobook, we'll be discussing fighting, martial art, self-protection, and the relationship between the three. Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy, and welcome to the Martial Map audiobook. Uh, I wanted to start 2011 off with something a little bit special. Uh, that's why I've decided to do this uh, in-depth uh, discussion, this in-depth audiobook. It's far too long to be called a podcast, so let's call it an audiobook. On what I see as the biggest problem in modern martial arts, in that training is often uh, completely unfocused. Uh, people aren't sure what they're training for and what objectives a given drill has and what skills it will develop and when we've developed those skills into which environments are they applicable. Um, so this uh, martial map is my uh, way of posing this question. It's my way of looking at the, 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 the problem, not the solution. It's designed to get you to, 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 to clearly understand the question. So listen to the, uh, the, the audiobook and I hope that you enjoy it. Um, study the related diagram and then what I'd suggest that you do is the next time you train, ask yourself the question, what's the objective of this drill? Where will it fit on the map? Well, those skills that this drill is developing, where do they fit on the map? Because when you do that, you'll train in a much more focused way. You'll become a better martial artist, you'll become a better fighter, and you'll be much more able to defend yourself if you're aware of what tools achieve what results. So um, I hope you enjoy the audiobook. I hope your 2011 is getting off to a, a great start. Um, I hope you enjoy this. Um, um, it's just, again, it's a special one, this one. It, it, I hope you find it useful and thought-provoking and, and really interesting, and we'll be back with the, uh, the regular podcast soon. So Happy New Year, everybody, and I hope you enjoy The Marshall Map. The Martial Map. In this audiobook, I will be looking at martial arts, fighting, self-protection, and their relationship to one another. Many martial arts instructors see martial arts, fighting, and self-protection as being one and the same thing, with all distinctions between them being completely lost. Personally, I think this lack of clarity to be highly problematic, and it's arguably the greatest problem we have when it comes to martial artists approaching the issue of self-protection. We train most effectively when we clearly define the objective of that training. However, it is my view that most practitioners and instructors are unclear what they are training for, and hence they have no idea how to train effectively for this undefined objective. So much of martial arts is a kind of schizophrenia, and what I mean by that, it's unclear what it wants to be, what the objectives are, and which personality is to be the dominant one at any given time. There's an inherent uncertainty about what they are training for, and that uncertainty leads to ineffective and unfocused training. In this audiobook, I'd like to suggest a simple model to help refocus people on the distinctions and similarities between various areas of study. It's my view that this will lead to more efficient and more focused training, and I call this model the Marshall Map. Three areas of study. I would suggest that we can divide modern practice into three broad areas of study. These areas are self-protection, fighting and martial arts. Now basic definition of each of these would be as follows. Martial arts, the use of combatively inspired disciplines to enhance physical health, provide personal challenge and growth, achieve an aesthetic beauty for cultural education, etc. Self-protection, the objective being to give the individual the skills they need to avoid being a victim of crime. Fighting. The objective being to effectively employ violence to achieve a given objective. Win about, kill the enemy, arrest the suspect, etc. I think that one of the biggest mistakes in the modern day is to superimpose all three on top of one another. And we have the common view that is fighting equals self-protection equals martial arts. This is not the case, and we'll be discussing a more accurate view of the similarities and differences between these three areas throughout this audiobook. I'd now like to quickly outline the differences between self-protection, fighting and martial arts, so we can be clear about the above definitions, and then move on from there to discuss the differences and commonalities in greater depth. So, if a person avoids a physical confrontation, then their self-protection skills were successful, but they didn't use any fighting skills. 
if a person gets involved in a street fight, batters the other guy to a pulp, and then goes to jail, then their fighting skills were great, but their self-protection skills were poor, because they got into a fight and found themselves on the wrong side of the law. The guy who finds that the martial arts add to the quality of their life as art and personal challenge is being successful as a martial artist, but that does not mean they can fight or protect themselves. They are different and should be treated as such if we are to successfully train for all three and get the benefits from all three. The fact that the distinctions between these three areas have melted away in much of modern practice is a major problem. To effectively address self-protection, we need to include things like personal security, awareness skills, the law, escaping, de-escalation and so on. Now none of that has any relevance to martial arts or fighting. To be a good fighter we need a whole host of skills that have no bearing on self-protection. For example, submissions, back and forth footwork, fainting, uh, provoking an incorrect trained response and so on. A person can be a good fighter and capable of defending themselves and yet still totally ignore the valuable personal development that is central to martial arts. While often viewed as being one of the same, fighting, martial arts and self-protection are not the same. They are related and we'll be discussing the nature of that relationship as we progress, but they're most definitely not the same. To help explore the relationships and distinctions between fighting, martial arts and self-protection, I have found uh, the Venn diagram, that I call the Marshall Map, to be very useful in my uh, teaching and practice. It's very important that you see this map and familiarise yourself with it. It's embedded in this podcast, so if you're listening to it on uh, an iPod or something like that, you'll be able to see it as it's playing. Uh, there's also a, a link to a page where you can view it in the comments, uh, uh, embedded in the comments of the podcast. And it was also displayed on the uh, ianabernethy.com website from where uh, some of you will have downloaded this podcast from. But you need to have a look at that, um, that, that diagram. Now, as you can see, when you look at the diagram, it's made up of three overlapping circles. One is for self-protection, which is green. One is for martial arts, which is red. And one is for fighting, which we've coloured yellow. As you can see from the diagram, the nature of the overlap means that each area has three areas within it. There's the area on its own, where no overlap, so where fighting doesn't overlap with anything else, for example. The area where it overlaps with one other area. And the area where it overlaps with both other areas. So in total, we have seven areas on the Marshall map. And if you look at the illustration, you'll see how I've numbered those. Now, I'd now like to discuss what I see as residing in each of these areas and how this affects the way we should train and study. Area 1. Pure self-protection. This is the area most frequently overlooked by martial arts instructors, and it is this oversight that most often results in self-protection being so poorly taught by martial artists. The problem is that martial arts instructors see self-protection as being entirely physical, and hence all non-physical aspects are not taught. This is extremely problematic because the most effective and most important aspects of self-protection have nothing to do with fighting or martial arts, i.e. the pure green area, one, on the diagram. A person can relatively easily adjust their day-to-day -day lives to make themselves far less likely to be a victim of crime. They can get good locks fitted to their home, not get blind drunk in public areas, only use licensed taxis, not put valuables on display, travelling in built-up areas with the car doors locked and so on. These areas of self-protection have nothing to do with fighting, and they are much more effective ways to avoid being a victim of crime than throwing punches when things have degenerated to that level. The majority of martial arts training has a tendency to have self-protection begin when things have already become physical, i.e. lesson one, how to get out of a headlock. However, avoiding situations is far more effective than dealing with them, and it is upon this avoidance that self-protection training should really be focused. As well as taking positive precautions to prevent situations from developing, pure self-protection should also cover the skills to avoid a situation as it develops. Now, most martial artists give these areas lip service. You know, for example, be aware. But when talking about awareness, people need to know what to be aware of. We can see things and not be aware of them being potential problems. The student, therefore, needs to be educated in what to look for, you know, the attack ritual and so on. 
People can learn all of this without ever putting on a gi or a pair of gloves. It's not fighting and it's not martial arts, but it should be covered if a person is claiming to teach self-protection. A default physical solution to self-protection is what most dojos offer. And we'll return to discuss the effectiveness of that solution later. But another problem with this is that the vast majority of people will never have what it takes to function effectively in a live situation. You know, they just don't, won't train hard enough or, 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 or for long enough or with enough intensity. Um, so rather than giving people the only option of fighting, which is less effective and less likely to keep them safe, most people are best served by staying away from fighting and the martial arts altogether and sticking with pure self-protection if their aim is to avoid crime. In my writing and teaching, I frequently use the phrase, fighting is what happens when self-protection goes wrong. If we therefore concentrate on getting the self-protection side of things to a high level, we can greatly reduce the chances of a situation becoming physical. And while this is of great importance to all, it's vital for those who don't have good physical skills or who are incapable or insufficiently motivated to develop those physical skills because they'll have no backup plan. Once the key areas of self-protection are covered, we could move on to the physical as a backup, i.e. the bits of self-protection which cross over with fighting, and we'll discuss those later. But to put the cart before the horse and emphasise the physical above all else is to really mess things up. The simple fact is that people genuinely concerned about being a victim of crime would be far better going on a course by an organisation like the Susie Lamplew Trust than going anywhere near the average martial arts dojo who will invariably teach wrongly that fighting skills are the answer to the totality of self-protection. The Susie Lamplew Trust and organisations like them teach self-protection way more effectively than the vast majority of martial artists because they never touch on the physical but instead deliver good personal safety training. Martial artists tend to focus on the physical and ignore or give lip service to personal safety training. Now it's nice to have the physical as a backup but we need to remember the best solution to crime and violence lie outside martial arts and fighting. There's also a lot of other things that can fall within the pure green area of self-protection that has nothing to do with the martial arts or fighting. Um, and it's for this reason I like to divide things up as per the, uh, the map, as per the diagram. Even if a martial arts group does cover threat awareness and assessment, personal security, the law, etc., there are still masses of self-protection material that is outside the realms of fighting and martial arts. For example, perceptions and fear of crime, mobile security, security in the home, hotel safety, communication skills and strategies, anti-stalking tactics, anti-surveillance, travel safety, bomb threat awareness, and a whole host of other material that forms part of uh, self-protection, but it's not fighting and it's not martial arts. Now, not all self-protection students need to be educated in all areas of self-protection. I mean, that would be difficult because it's such a wide field and it's certainly not possible for non-professionals. We therefore need to prioritise what is relevant. Now, I would suggest that what we cover are the most likely things to impact those studying with us. I would also suggest that we need to acknowledge that the physical is not the best answer and that for most people who are not going to dedicate decades of their lives to training, the best programme of training for self-protection will have nothing to do with martial arts or fighting. Self-protection is a lot more than the physical aspect. I therefore think that there are whole areas of self-protection that even the most highly graded martial artists and even world-level fighters will know absolutely nothing about. I would not expect a high-graded martial artist or an MMA champion or whatever to know what the Criminal Law Act 1967 uh, Section 3.1 states. What rights Palmer versus the Crown 1971 gives us? What rights the Crown versus Beckford 1988 gives us? Um, the relationship between Cooper's Colour Code and the Threat Pyramid. Uh, what leaps is and how it can be applied to avoid conflict. What your legal rights are should you be arrested. The causes and signs of violence. The best way to secure your home from intruders and so on and so on. I would expect uh, you know, someone teaching self-protection to know all of that as standard. Now, it would be totally okay for martial artists to say they know the physical combative side of self-protection well, but don't know the other stuff. What is not okay is when they don't know what they don't know, and hence teach the physical as the best or only option, when in reality the non-physical option, the non-martial, non-fighting option, is the best option for self-protection. True self-protection is so much more than the physical, and has many elements that fall outside fighting and martial arts. That's why I find the martial map to be useful, 
as it can help make fighters and martial artists aware of that. For the vast majority of people, it's the material we would find in Area 1, pure self-protection, that will most effectively help them avoid being a victim of crime. Sadly, most martial arts instructors don't do that. What they'll do is they'll teach them fighting or martial arts. And again, it's important to know what's the objective we're training for and what skills are most likely to help us achieve that objective. Area 2. Pure Martial Arts. When discussing the martial arts, one problem we're immediately going to come up against is that the term martial arts means different things to different people. Whilst I'm happy to use the term, as most people do, as a generic cover-all term for a large array of combative methods and activities based on combat, no matter how remotely, I feel there's a more specific, more accurate definition of martial arts that can help eliminate confusion and better focus training. I doubt very much that the past masters thought of what they did as martial arts. They'll have considered it self-protection or fighting, depending on the system. But I think that martial arts, you know, emphasis on the art, is something that came along with the door or martial way era. And that's why I like to use the term in the context that I do when being specific about context. As Japan left the feudal era and began to modernise, the fighting skills needed on a battlefield were deemed outmoded and old-fashioned. Civilian systems, such as karate, also had the added problem of being seen as violent pursuits and perhaps unfitting for Japanese youth. However, most systems have a moral dimension or a code of ethics, as this was needed for the unity of armies and to ensure that those skilled in the use of violence did not disrupt the harmony of society. The practitioners of these systems realised that it was this moral education and the related physical education, as opposed to the combative elements, that would help ensure their systems had a future. A strong case can be made for Kano being the most influential person of this time. Kano divided his judo into three levels. And I think this is a really valuable model for all systems that have embraced or have been influenced by the Do or martial way revolution. So Kano did, broke things up as this, you know. So the first thing was lower level judo. And that was judo as a combative system where the aim is the development of fighting skills as defined by the wider ethos of judo. We've then got middle-level judo, so judo as a means of physical and moral education where the aim is the holistic development of the individual. Then we have upper-level judo. Judo as a means to enhance society where the aim is getting the individuals of good character to positively contribute to society. You know, developing combative skills has obviously always been a part of battle training and the training in civilian systems. Whereas combative skills were once the overriding goal of training, the move to martial arts saw an ever greater emphasis placed on the middle and upper levels. As an example, uh, Gichin Funakoshi, who was founder of Shotokan Karate and who was greatly influenced by Kano, I mean, he famously said, the ultimate aim of karate is not victory or defeat, but the perfection of character of its participants. You know, we see here you know, a high emphasis on the middle or upper levels. Now, there are areas of crossover between martial arts, fighting and self-protection as part of the map, and we'll look at those later. However, for now, we need to acknowledge that there are areas of martial arts that have nothing to do with either fighting or self-protection. The shift to Do has meant that the martial arts have developed as a means to foster personal development, introspection, health, the preservation of a certain martial culture, and so on. While all these things can be very valuable and interesting in and of themselves, a person wishing to teach or study self-protection should be aware that these elements have no value from a self-protection perspective. This is one more reason why martial arts, using both the wider and more focused definitions, are generally not a good option for those wishing to study self-protection. Now, there are martial artists who practice in the pure red area, okay, um, the area with no overlap, you know, area two on the map. They don't look at fighting or self-protection and are very much focused on the, the art. Um, and the benefits that that brings. Now, some are aware that what they do has no relevance to fighting or for self-protection, but others aren't. And it's the ones who are not aware that what they do has no relevance to either fighting or self-protection who are potentially a big problem, as they frequently promote art and culture as being self-defense. Now, personally, I see nothing wrong with the art side of it. Indeed, it's got a lot of uh, positive benefits, but it needs to be acknowledged for what it is. 
Now, when I have discussed this model with martial artists in the past, there's sometimes a confusion as to how martial arts can be totally devoid of a self-protection or fighting component. As some struggle to visualize what would fall into the pure red area, into area two. Uh, the red area would include things like lots of line work with a solid emphasis on aesthetics and none on function. Lots of kata with an emphasis on aesthetics but none on bunkai. One step sparring, in inverted commas, sparring drills that has no relevance to fighting or the physical side of self-protection and so on. Early morning tai chi by the elderly in the local park could also be martial arts with no link to fighting or self-protection. Um, outdated arts now practiced in a non-combative way, such as Kudo or Iaido, could also fall into this category. As I've said, all these elements can be interesting and valuable in and of themselves, but they are of little relevance to self-protection or fighting, and this needs to be understood. Now, I think that the diagram and the map and the approach being outlined in this audiobook can help people develop this, uh, this understanding. Area 3. Pure Fighting Earlier we defined fighting as being the effective employment of violence to achieve a given objective. In the pure yellow area of the Venn diagram, Area 3, this would be fighting to the finish or to a firm conclusion. In the areas of overlap, which we'll look at later, this could be fighting to facilitate escape which would be where it would cross over with self-protection, or fighting as a means to develop non-combative goals, which would be the crossover with martial arts. For now, when discussing pure fighting, we are looking at fighting to a conclusion in order to achieve a given objective. There are, of course, many different types of fighting, and these different types of fighting are all the result of differing objectives. Although not recognised as such, all the various styles of fighting we have today are a direct result of training programs being designed to address set objectives. In the sporting realm of fighting, the objective is determined by the rules. When the rules change, what is needed to win changes, and hence the method of fighting changes. A good recent example of this is the change to the rules of judo that prohibit a direct initial attack to the legs. You can't grab the legs as a first attack. The thinking behind this rule change is to ensure judo remains distinct from wrestling, and Perhaps that has something to do with its desire to ensure it keeps its Olympic place, who knows. Um, but this does mean that many of the original techniques of judo, i.e. Rotegari, are now obsolete and will no doubt fall by the wayside completely as things progress. Um, the rise of MMA as a distinctive style also shows how styles of fighting are objective-driven. In the early days, when it truly was a mixed martial arts affair, it was quickly observed that certain methods had advantages over others. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, BJJ, was a system designed specifically for one-on-one -on -one weaponless duels, and hence it's highly effective in the early MMA events. This effectiveness was also enhanced by the fact that Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was not widely known, and hence practitioners of other systems quickly found themselves not knowing how to deal with the methods employed. However, as more people were exposed to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the more they were able to utilise and counter that, uh, the methodology. Um, also, rule changes like the introduction of rounds and competitors being, to st uh, being made to stand back up if a fight was not progressing on the ground, uh, they meant that uh, further evolution was required. And you know, this evolution is still ongoing, uh, but MMA is now a style in and of itself, and the objective of that style being success in MMA bouts. You know, um, MMA, to, to me, just a quick aside, I, mean, I absolutely love MMA and I love seeing the way it's evolving. Uh, but we can see that. You can you can watch the MMA uh, as it changes, and it's a, it's a very fluid system. But we, we now have a system that is called MMA, and it's designed to win MMA bouts. You know, it's a system under continuous development, but it's a system nevertheless. Um, now, away from the sporting martial arts, the objective still determines how the fighting is trained for and employed. Uh, as examples, the police officer may need to employ violence to arrest an individual so that you know, they're trained with that objective in mind. A soldier will be given objectives and will train to deliberately kill those who would attempt to thwart those objectives. At the point I wish to make here is that fighting can never be divorced from a given objective. The frequent question of whether a given method is effective or not is absolutely meaningless unless we also define effective for what. Is being able to take an opponent to the floor and hold them down effective? 
Well, it most certainly is in wrestling and judo, but for MMA, the hold is not the end result. You can't, you know, a hold can't result in an outright win. And hence, it's only effective if done in such a way that it will permit the execution of strikes and submissions. For a police officer, those skills may have some use, but due to the need to restrain and handcuff, the recipient needs to be pinned face down as opposed to on their back. And now, because third parties can also get involved you know, on both sides, you know, for and against the police officer, then this again uh, will affect what is effective. The objective always determines the most effective tr way to train for that objective. We can't forget that all systems have a given objective, and training in a system that has differing objectives for those which you have personally is unlikely to be productive. If you want to win judo tournaments, then train in judo. Now, with regards to cross-training, which I'm a grand believer in, it's, it's, it's good to train in lots of different systems, but when we're doing that, we need to identify which skills are relevant to our core goals, i.e. which skills are transferable, and which ones are not. Now, those skills are still valuable to learn in and of themselves. There's plenty I learned in judo, which has no relevance outside the world of, of, of judo. But, but I still like learning those skills, but they're not transferable to other things. And we'll return to this when we discuss the crossover between self-protection and fighting. Area 4. Self-protection stroke martial arts. There are some things that apply to both self-protection and the martial arts and yet they have nothing to do with fighting. The first of these that we're going to discuss is the control of ego. Getting involved in unnecessary altercations is often the result of ego. Statistically this would seem to be particularly true of young males. Being forced into a situation where we have no option but to get physical is one thing. However, willingly engaging in a conflict that could have been avoided is not at all smart. In Karate Do My Way of Life, Gichin Funakoshi tells of how uh, he was mugged while taking some baking from his wife to her father. In his retelling of what happened to Anko Itosu and Anko Izato, Funakoshi said how he surrendered the baking to the gang. When then asked what gifts he gave to his father-in-law, Funakoshi said that he offered a prayer at the family shrine. And apparently this resulted in an extremely rare well done from a Zato and Itosu. There are many other tales like this throughout the traditional martial arts where the control of ego and the avoidance of situations is praised with greater enthusiasm than the application of physical skill. Ken Wamabuni also wrote about how control of one's ego and the avoidance of a hostile attitude was valuable from both a self-development and a self-protection perspective. He said, there is no first attacking karate should be properly understood to mean that the karateka must never take a hostile attitude or be the cause of a violent incident. He or she should always have the virtues of calmness, prudence and humility in dealing with others. Uzuka, the founder of Wadaru, also cautioned against arrogance when he wrote, It's important to create confidence in one's skills through training. However, to become arrogant and to rely upon that skill is most dangerous. You know, so we can see these um, personal qualities. Uh, being discussed both for their own value and, of course, for their self-protection value as well. Um, Article 2 of the Bibishi, which is a Chinese martial arts uh, manual that had a huge impact on karate, contains uh, many pieces of guidance from uh, Master Wang that have implications for both personal development and personal protection. Among these are things like, uh, let anger be your enemy, delay is the best remedy for anger, mind your manners and your own business, and so on. The third article, uh, Advice on Etiquette, also contains some valuable character development, stroke self-protection guidance. So this, this comes from that, this is you know, from Pat McCarthy's translation. It says, if one has irresistible urges to behave violently because of mood changes and disturbs the tranquility of heaven and earth, they will no doubt be the result of some extremely prejudicial circumstances. This advice is particularly important for young men. Young men are known to sometimes fly off the handle for what amounts to nothing more than a lack of confidence. They like to engage in fighting without really thinking. So, so, sound advice, you know, and again we can see the tie-up between self-protection uh, and self-perfection. The Babishi goes on to say that such characteristics should be recognised early on, um, so appropriate action can be taken. As well as ensuring one's behaviour and outlook was unlikely to lead to unnecessary conflict, the past masters also wrote extensively about the importance of being aware so that conflict could be avoided. 
Now, they give very little guidance on uh, how to do this, you know, so this would fall into the Area 1 study, but instead they focused on a general awareness of one's circumstances, and hence the avoidance of conflict was a desirable character trait. In Karate Do Kyohan, Gichin Funakoshi said, The secret principle of martial arts is not vanquishing an attacker, but resolving to avoid an encounter before its occurrence. To become the object of an attack is an indication that there was an opening in one's guard, and the important thing is to be on guard at all times. Now this awareness was not to be confused with paranoia, which is obviously not a desirable character trait. Um, Uzuka, the founder of Wadaru, wrote in his Wadaru Karate book, he said, No matter how skilled one is in the martial arts, he will find himself unprepared if encountered off guard. Ideally, then, one should constantly be in a state of preparedness. Preparation of one's mind is necessary at all times, not to the extent of paranoia, but as a course of habit. Before the days of martial arts, when systems were practiced entirely for their practical use, the aspects of character development will have not have been ends in themselves, but as a means to ensure personal safety and harmony within the society in question. Indeed, Utsuka wrote along those lines when he said that he saw no distinction between uh, Jitsu and Do. He said, uh, Do and Jitsu intend the same objective. There is no difference in using either term. The positive lifestyle fostered by the martial arts also greatly lessens the chances of the individual being a victim of crime. Staying away from violent people and places in favour of the gym or dojo, limiting alcohol intake, avoiding other mind-altering substances, the establishment of an alternative circle of friends, including the fact that the martial arts have a fairly unique quality of stretching across all cultures and classes, uh, raising self-esteem, and hence making people less likely to accept controlling potentially abusive relationships, and a whole host of other things that contribute towards both self-protection and self-development. Area 5. The crossover between self-protection and fighting. We've already discussed how fighting always needs the objective to be defined. If the non-physical aspects of self-protection have failed, then we have no option but to fight to ensure our safety. Where this aspect of fighting is different from the pure fighting of Area 3, which we discussed earlier, is that we are not looking for a win or to fight to a conclusion, but to fight as a means to escape. And what I mean by that is we're fighting in order not to fight. Now, strictly speaking, karate is not a martial art. The word martial comes from Mars, the Roman god of war, and hence has a meaning of warlike or related to war. Karate was never intended to be used in war and has always been a civilian system. The past masters were very aware of this and were very careful to clearly define the objective of their system. In 1908, Anka Witosu, uh, the founder of the Pinan Hian series and the person who first introduced karate into the education system, uh, he wrote, Karate is not intended to be used against a single adversary, but it is instead a method of avoiding injury through using the hands and feet should one, by chance, be confronted by villains or ruffians. In this line, which I consider to be the most important in the history of karate, it also states that karate, the karate of his time, was not intended to defeat a single person in a square go, but was instead a method to prevent villains and ruffians from harming the practitioner. It also was not alone in making this distinction. Uh, Motobu, Chochoki Motobu, once said, The techniques of the kata have their limits and were not intended for use in an arena or on a battlefield. They are, however, very effective against someone unfamiliar with the methods being used against them. I mean, there are a few things to draw out of this. You know, firstly, the past masters were very aware that fighting in a specific sense is not fighting in a generic sense, and that a given method cannot be divorced from the objective that gave rise to that method. Furthermore, a system designed to achieve a given objective will not be able to achieve other objectives without modification. Secondly, we should note that Itosu talks about avoiding injury, not of winning. The aim, therefore, is to facilitate escape and not to fight to the finish. Finally, both Motobu and Itosu identified that their karate was not for, uh, for dealing with trained warriors or combative competitors, but instead for villains and ruffians not familiar with the methods. 
you know, away from the specifics, uh, specifics of karate, the points just discussed do generally apply to the physical side of self-protection. So let's just go through these. So point one. If we want the physical skills for self-protection, then we need to train specifically with that objective in mind. It's not about being able to fight in a general sense, but training to address the specific contexts um, of self-protection. Point two. For self-protection, the aim is not to win, but to ensure we don't lose. <laughs> to paraphrase Gichin Furukoshi. If I escape then I have not won the fight, but I have done the right thing to keep myself safe by not losing the fight. And point three. For self-protection, we are not fighting our own kind. And that very important point needs to be factored into training. The skills used to outbox a boxer are therefore not relevant. We also don't need to consider the skills needed to out-wrestle wrestlers or tap out an MMA practitioner in a cage. It is my view that these key points are often lost when martial artists discuss the physical side of self-protection. The context is not defined and hence the fighting being practiced may or may not have any relevance. We're not, they're unsure of the objective again. Um, so I'd now like to discuss uh, some of the implications of this common oversight. The first issue I'd like to look at is the mistaken notion that being able to fight in one environment means that you can function effectively in all other environments. Having the skills to outfight someone in a given context does not mean a person will automatically have the skills to escape violence in a self-protection context. They require different skill sets. They are different, and they need to be trained for specifically. Uh, this is not widely appreciated, though, and many martial artists buy into the byproduct myth, which is a term I've uh, borrowed from Jamie Club. The byproduct myth is where people believe that by training for one thing, they will develop the skills for something else by default or as an automatic byproduct. Now, this is not the case. A highly skilled karateka can be very effective when fighting in karate competitions. A skilled judoka will do very well in judo tournaments. A skilled MMA competitor can be highly effective in the cage. All of the aforementioned are good fighters, but just because they are good fighters within one environment does not mean they will automatically develop the skills needed for any other environment, or for physical self-protection. The environment has specific requirements. Um, as do all other environments, and need to be specifically trained for. Now, whenever I've mentioned this before, it normally generates a strong reaction from people who feel I'm saying that they, and all other practitioners of their system or adherents of uh, their given approach, are incapable of fighting effectively in real situations. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that their given system will have differing objectives and that the goal of effective self-protection uh, is most effectively achieved by training specifically for self-protection. Now, sure, there's some crossover. A good punch is a good punch regardless of the environment in which it is used. However, the way in which it is used can be radically different. I'd now like to discuss some of these differences and the impact they should have on training. Perhaps the biggest difference is that self-protection situations are won by escaping, not by winning, not by staying and fighting. The vast majority of fighting systems define a win when one combatant defeats the other through a knockout or submission or on points, depending on the system. The big problem with this approach, if it is moved across to self-protection, is that the best fighter wins. But all well and good, but what if the assailant is a better fighter, or there are simply too many of them to outfight? No, the simple answer to this is not to fight them. Now, many people will give lip service to the notion of running away whenever possible, but the Big problems with this. Two major problems with this. Firstly, how can you be good at something if you don't practice it? Escaping is not as simple as turning around and running, especially if you're facing a group. Uh, we need to be able to position ourselves so we're not surrounded, disengage from any grips, uh, hit as we move, avoid engaging with any one person for too long, assess the best direction to escape, negotiate and utilize any obstacles, and ensure that when we do flee, we're not leaving our exposed back vulnerable to attack. Totally neglecting to practice these skills, but expecting people to magically acquire them when needed is foolhardy. Now, no one would ex accept a judo coach failing to teach a certain throw, while simultaneously advising the use of that throw in competition. Likewise, I don't think it's acceptable to advise escape without practicing escape. The second big problem with not practicing escaping is that under stress, the student will resort to what they know and what they have drilled. If all they ever have practiced is fighting to a conclusion, then that's what they'll automatically seek to do. 
It's not so much that they will ignore the opportunities to escape, more that they simply won't see those opportunities are there. Uh, they'll carry on fighting, just as they've been trained to do, and hence make themselves entirely vulnerable to any non-fighters. I.e., well, they could be winning the fight on one front with one single individual, yet they can find themselves being repeatedly stabbed by any number of unencumbered accomplices who find they can have as many free shots as they care to take. Now, this leads us on to multiple attackers. Um, all combative fighting systems take place on a one-on-one -on -one basis. The big difference when it comes to self-protection is no such guarantee that things will be one-on-one, -on -one, or, or even remain that way if they started that way. A lot of the common practices in pure fighting are therefore not only redundant, but downright dangerous. Anything where you engage with a single person for more than a moment can leave you wide open to others. Deliberately grappling and ground fighting, and moving around, getting positioned with one guy, you know, all this kind of stuff, can be very effective when fighting one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, but they're not fight effective when the group is there, you know, when you can get involved with the group. Now, now again, let me be clear, it's not that such methods are ineffective, it's simply that they're ineffective and dangerous choices in this context. In my group, we practice escaping to predetermined safe zones from both single and multiple attackers. I would suggest that all other groups claiming to adequately prepare people for live uh, self-protection situations should do the same thing. One other thing we practice is the protection of others. It's entirely possible that we be could become the object of a physical attack when with family and loved ones. A solo escape is therefore no longer an option. Uh, well, it is, but, you know, <laughs> most people aren't that callous, you know. So um, engaging with one person and the others, the other members of their gang, can freely attack your loved ones. Now, it's also unrealistic to expect the people being protected to flee while we detain the assailants. Um, they'll also care about us, hopefully, and uh, are likely to be reluctant to leave us behind. We therefore need to practice simultaneously getting between any assailants and the people being protected while also getting space for all to flee. Now this is it's not an easy skill and it needs to be drilled frequently. One-on-one -on -one fighting simply won't develop this vitally important self-protection skill. Another difference is weapons. What can work very well on an unarmed opponent can be extremely ineffective with an armed one. Uh, we have a number of drills to bring this home and very quickly people realise the right conclusion that staying to fight an armed enemy or enemies is likely to end in disaster. Anyone who doubts this should allow the use of simulated weapons in their grappling practice. It becomes readily apparent that it's not the best fighter who wins but most frequently the guy with the weapon. The trick is once again to ensure effective escape and, as we have said, this needs to be practiced like any other skill. Now if escape is not possible then we have no option but to fight to the finish. But even here the environment changes things radically. As mentioned earlier the karate masters of the past knew it was villains and ruffians who were not familiar with karate that they would be facing. However martial artists today tend to concentrate on fighting practitioners of their own style. Because of this, the enemy is very familiar with the methods they are facing. This means that their training can be used against them. You know, if I know the guy in front of me is a karateka, I can use the fact that I know he's a karateka against him. Or if I know he's a boxer or I know he's a judoka, whatever, you know. And I can use feints, I can draw, I can use unexpected, unusual attacks and so on. But none of this has any relevance to the physical side of self-protection, though. We simply can't play chess in the way we can when we're dueling, and what I mean by that is engaging in a consensual fight, um, with practitioners of our own style. There's also a tendency to extend the range when people engage in consensual fights, in order to allow playing for position. The, this distance, this extended distance, and back and forth uh, footwork also have little relevance to the physical side of self-protection. Another difference to quickly discuss is speed. While many martial artists can move very quickly, they're nevertheless spend quite a bit of time playing for position. The overall rate of fire is therefore relatively slow. When a self-protection situation develops into a fight, there's an extremely high rate of fire, and most martial artists are surprised by the frantic chaos that ensues. Now this can be avoided if training replicates reality. So self-protection does have a physical component that can be employed when the non-physical aspects have failed. This kind of fighting, like all other kinds of fighting, needs to be focused on the objective. If an individual or group desires to effectively address physical self-protection, then it is not enough uh, to practice fighting, as in pure Area th 3 fighting. They need to be in the overlap, Area 5. 
not buy into the byproduct myth and remain goal focused. Area 6. Fighting and Martial Arts As we discussed earlier, the recognition that the study of combative systems could have value beyond the application of violence is what led to the development of martial arts. We've also discussed where fighting and self-protection can overlap through the use of combative skills to escape in a situation. In this section we're going to look at how fighting and martial arts overlap. One of the things we find in this, this area, in Area 6, are the skills designed to bring a situation to a successful conclusion as defined by the nature of the system, that are also effective and applicable, but are now primarily practiced for cultural reasons and for personal development due to the march of history. A good example of this could be weapons-based systems such as kabuto or arnis. Now, the chances of two people fighting each other with sticks or a kabuto cat taking on a swordsman with a pair of sai are now extremely remote to say the least. Now, that's not to say that the skills developed are not functional, because they most certainly are. It's simply that they're unlikely to ever have the opportunity to be directly used outside the dojo or gym, and hence they're now mainly practiced today for their um, side benefits, you know, their martial arts benefits. Other practices that could fall into this category are skills that do have relevance to fighting, but are also practiced for aesthetic, uh, physical condition or cultural purposes. Now, as an example, you know, you can use leaping kicks in a taekwondo tournament, so that's a part of fighting. But they can also be good for physical conditioning, for personal challenge, uh, but leaping kicks would have no relevance to self-protection. Um, other things, uh, long flow drills uh, would also find their home in this part of the diagram. Really long flow drills have no relevance to self-protection, where the key aim of getting away at the first opportunity is not reflected in such a drill. Um, they also rely on conditioned responses. Uh, that we may get when dueling with fellow martial artists and fighters, but are extremely unlikely to get in a self-protection situation. Uh, the kind of relevance to fighting, if, if the aim is to eventually remove compliance at some point, and the drills are seen as a means to an end. Um, such drills can also be practiced as art, as personal challenge, as cultural education, as physical conditioning, and to foster and develop other areas of martial arts. There are aspects of character development that would also fall into this area. In both ancient and modern armies, things like self-sacrifice for the greater good, a desire to feed anything that stands in the way of the objective, uh, overwhelming courage, etc., are encouraged for pragmatic purposes. However, we do see you know, occasional political calls for army training in the form of national service or boot camps, purely to develop these characteristics in the individual, for their own benefit and the benefit of the society in which they live. The original Dole movement to develop uh, true martial arts arose from a similar sentiment, and as can be seen by the many militaristic practices that exist in many modern martial arts. Uh, these characteristics can also be very helpful to people in their everyday lives and can also be beneficial to wider society. You know, you'll remember our discussion on Kano's middle and upper level judo. So while many of the above personal characteristics will have originally been encouraged for functional purposes, later on it was these characteristics that were deemed to be the primary goal of training within martial arts. So when we talk about fighting in a military context, the development of these common attributes should be placed in Area 6. Um, you should also note how these personal characteristics differ in some way from the ones we placed in Area 4, uh, the crossover between martial arts and self-protection. The effective warrior who loves his work and the civilian with a desire to avoid conflict obviously require different character traits. And although these traits may run contrary to one another when it comes to dealing with conflict, as opposed to avoiding conflict, um, they are all useful to the individual as a rounded human being, and hence that's why areas 4 and 6 are both within the martial arts circle. There are some commonalities between the warrior and the civilian who wishes to avoid conflict, though. Uh, but these things will belong in area 7, and we'll discuss these later. All of these things in area 6 can have great value, but for the purposes of this audiobook, we need to acknowledge that the things in this area have no relevance to self-protection. Therefore, when they are practiced, we need to be clear on why we are practicing them and ensure that that is effectively communicated to our students. This way, confusion can be avoided, the students won't use the wrong skill set at the wrong time, and we're free to practice all of the above without having to artificially create a false link to self-protection for the benefits and sheer enjoyment that they can bring uh, in the areas of fighting and martial arts.
Area 7, the common ground between self-protection, martial arts and fighting. Having discussed the various differences, commonalities and distinctions between the various areas, I'd now like to quickly cover that which is common to self-protection, martial arts and fighting. Being in good shape physically can make us better fighters, uh, more able to escape violent situations and possibly make us a less attractive target from a self-protection perspective, and it can also positively affect the quality and length of our lives from a martial arts perspective. A strong, resilient, disciplined and focused mind is beneficial in everyday life, and hence that's one of the things that martial arts seek to develop. Such a mind is also a requirement to fight effectively and to successfully function and escape when exposed to violence. Now finally, good technique is a requirement for effective self-protection, fighting and martial arts. A solid reverse punch can be used to facilitate escape, win a fight and to provide a vehicle for personal development in the study of the martial arts. Uh, one potential problem here is that both the physical side of self-protection and fighting have objective measures. Um, whereas technique in the martial arts is sadly uh, frequently measured by subjective criteria such as style purity, dogmatic adherence to the degrees of a given group or master, or you know, non-functional arbitrary aesthetics and so on. I give the term uh, artificial success criteria to all measures that have no bearing on a technique's function. The, the point here is that in Area 7, good technique is one and the same with functional technique. Martial arts technique that is good, by any other measure, belongs in Area 2 and the realm of pure martial arts. Uh, Utsuka, the founder of Wadaru, wrote in his Wadaru Karate book that there were three uh, strengths, and said that if any of these three strengths were deficient, it would be the downfall of the individual. Uh, these strengths are uh, physical strength, technical strength, and mental strength. And these three strengths are essentially what we're discussing uh, in this section. And all three of these have a bearing on fighting, martial arts and self-protection. Uh, hence, that's why they should be re uh, located in the central area of the martial map. Conclusion Arguably, the biggest problem in martial arts today using the term martial art in its generic sense, as opposed to the specific sense we've been using the term in the preceding discussion, is an unintentional lack of focus. We have people teaching systems of self-development as fighting systems, uh, people believing MMA is the ultimate answer to the question of self-defense, um, and a widespread ignorance of the vitally important non-physical aspects of self-protection. The problem is not that the solution is ineffective, it's simply that the solution in question is a solution to another problem. This is not readily grasped though, and any attempt to point out that many aspects of fighting and martial arts have no connection to self-protection is seen as a slight on the specific method of fighting or the martial art being discussed. The reason for this is the common view that fighting equals martial arts equals self-protection. It is therefore felt that the suggestion that anything doesn't work in a specific environment is the same as saying it is somehow faulty. Now this is not the case of course, I mean I would not use a paintbrush to knock a nail in, but that does not mean that paintbrushes are inherently faulty. Uh, this is readily apparent if you try to paint with a hammer. Uh, there is also a widespread belief in the byproduct myth, i.e. if I train in the martial arts I will know all there is to know about fighting and self-protection. Uh, if, if I'm a great fighter, then I know all there is to know about protecting myself, and, and so on. Um, this also compounds the problem of unfocused and then ineffective training. It's also key to understand that there's no need to train in just one aspect. Uh, we can train for and study self-protection, fighting and the martial arts, and there are lots of benefits in doing that. However, a problem exists when people only address one aspect and mistakenly believe they've covered all three. Now this again comes from the incorrect view that fighting equals martial arts equals self-protection. A further related problem is the perceived need to link all skills to self-protection despite their total lack of relevance in order for them to have any perceived value. If we had approached things as shown in the diagram then things that have no value for self-protection can still have huge value for fighting or martial arts. There also exists the problem that many instructors don't know what they don't know, 
for example, they may be extremely talented fighters, uh, and because they mistakenly believe that fighting equals martial arts equals self-protection, then they don't appreciate the great many things that are of vital importance to self-protection that fall outside the realms of fighting. They'll fail to learn and teach things like awareness, avoidance, personal security, the law, the dynamics of abuse and relationships, uh, crime statistics, and so on. All of which are far more important for self-protection than a solid cross. However, as we discussed earlier, because we have that you know, the old age problem of when all you have is a hammer, then every problem is a nail. So instructors who teach a, a purely physical approach to self-protection uh, are effectively promoting fighting as the first and only response. Because that's all they know. All they know is fighting, so fighting's the only solution they can give. And we don't want to be doing that, because this is obviously not good. You know, It's also not enough to say, avoid situations, be aware, escape if you can, and so on. There are skills associated with those things which require training and practice. Um, such lip service is comparable with saying, hit them, without ever practicing striking. There's also the added problem of fighting to win, as opposed to fighting to flee which means the fighting skills being practiced can still be uh, ultimately ineffective due to the addition of multiple enemies, weapons, and so on. This can be very problematic, and it stems from an ignorance that fighting, martial arts, and self-protection are not one and the same. Exposure to the, you know, the martial map and associated thinking may help people understand what their existing skill set covers and what skills may be lacking should they wish to approach other areas. For training to be effective, we need to adequately define the problem so we can understand it, and then design training programs to specifically address that problem. It is my belief that approaching training by thinking about the areas shown on the Marshall map will help us define what is relevant to achieving a given goal, what is not relevant, where and how existing skills are applicable, what new skills we need to acquire if we are to effectively address previously unexplored areas, and it also frees us up to practice all areas for their own inherent value. I began this audiobook by saying that many martial arts instructors see martial arts, fighting and self-protection as being one and the same. And this lack of clarity is arguably the biggest problem we have when it comes to martial artists approaching the issue of self-protection. The martial map and associated thinking is my proposed solution to this problem. By understanding the distinctions and the commonalities between the various areas on the map, and by identifying where any given practice would lie on the map, we can train and teach in a focused, objective-driven way, and hence become better fighters, better martial artists, and more effectively address the issue of self-protection for ourselves and those who come to us for self-protection training and guidance. That concludes the Marshall Map audiobook. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed that, and I hope that it uh, was thought-provoking for you. As I said at the start, I think the next thing to do is to take the map, uh, to study it, and then the next time you're training, to try and determine where that practice would fit on that map. And then you know, you'll, you'll train in a much more focused way. Uh, in the audiobook, we concentrated on the self-protection uh, angle, generally simply because I think that's the most misunderstood. Uh, generally because it's the one that people have less experience of. They have plenty of experience of dojo fighting, but not so much real situations, I guess. Um, so, but it, it applies to all of it. You know, There's no reason at all why you can't be a good martial artist, a good fighter, and be totally capable of protecting yourself. You just need to be aware of what tools, what skills, and what drills are relevant to what to, to what area, uh, to not buy into the byproduct myth and not to get things all mixed up. So hopefully the, the Marshall map will help you uh, clarify your uh, um, your thinking. And, uh, and again, you know, I'd say there's no need for you to all think the same as, as I do, but I'd say that, that's the uh, the model that I use to pose the question. Um, and in my own dojo, I say we cover all three of those areas. Um, no area is more or less valuable than any other. Uh, we just need to be aware of what we're training for at any given time. So I hope that you found that uh, useful. I hope that it was enjoyable to you. And we'll be back soon with uh, regular podcasts. Um, if you're not a regular subscriber to the podcast, you can subscribe to them via iTunes or you can join the newsletter at ianabernethy.com. Um, then we'll drop you a, 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 an email. Uh, the newsletter always comes out the same time the podcasts do. Uh, you can also follow me on Facebook at Facebook forward slash Ian Abernethy or Twitter forward slash Ian Abernethy, spelt I-A-I-N-A-B-E-R-N-E-T-H-Y. So, uh, yes, so thank you very much for your support in 2010. 
Um, uh, again, I've got plenty of good things I hope to share with you in 2011. Uh, if you enjoy these these podcasts and these things that we bring out, then you know by all means tell other people about them. As the more people we get listening to them, uh, the better. So thank you for all your support, and um, I'll be back uh, to speak to you soon. Okay, bye bye now. Bye.